This morning I'm going to uh, read for you out of Psalm chapters 9 and 10. We did this last week and I read it out of the New King James Version. Uh, I'm going to be reading it out of the English translation of the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek. It uh, gives you a little bit of a variance, and I just want to remind you that Psalm 9 and 10, in uh, most uh, understanding of the text, is really one song, should be combined as one psalm. And so we're going to be reading it together. It is a little lengthy, 30-some uh, verses, but we're going to uh, read through this again. We are really picking up in our study uh, appropriately this morning, and, and I can't say that I can't take any credit for its planning, but it is appropriate that we're going to land in this part of history. And just a little reminder from last week, and for those of you who missed last week, um, we are really dealing with a psalm that has gone his, into future and treating it as history, and then turning around and looking back at history and working our way from the future backwards rather than from the present forwards. And so we already have God coming and judging the earth in the early portions of this book. We have then concluded last week with the church age that you'll see picked up on where we have a responsibility of communicating the gospel to other people. And then this morning we are in a passage that's dealing with the specifically the resurrection, but also the crucifixion of Christ uh, in that, uh, that message that we are supposed to be preaching. And then we'll be looking farther into the past from there. But follow along with me as closely as you can if you just want to listen because you know it's in a different uh, translation that maybe you have available to you. Uh, Psalm chapter 9, God's Word declares, For the end, concerning the hidden things of the Son, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your wondrous things. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemy turns backward, they shall be feeble and perish before your face, for you maintain my judgment and my right. You sit upon the throne judging in righteousness. You rebuke the nations, and the ungodly man destroys himself. You blotted out their name in their lifetime and unto the ages of ages. The swords of the enemy are completely forsaken, and you pulled down their cities. Their memory was destroyed with a noise, but the Lord abides forever. He prepared his throne in judgment, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall judge the peoples in uprightness. The Lord is also a refuge for the poor man, a helper in seasons of affliction. And let those who know your name put their hope in you. For you, O Lord, do not forsake those who seek you. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his dealings among the nations. For he who avenges blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the poor. Have mercy on me, O Lord, and see how my enemies have humbled me. You raised me up from the gates of death, that I may proclaim all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations are trapped in the destruction they caused. Their foot is caught in the trap they hid. The Lord is known in the judgments he makes. The sinner is caught in the works of his hands. Pause. Let sinners be turned back into Hades and all the nations who forget God. For the poor man shall not be forgotten in the end. The patience of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. 
Let the nations be judged in your presence. Set a lawgiver over them, O Lord, and let the nations know that they are men. Pause. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you disgrace me in times of affliction? When the ungodly man behaves arrogantly, the poor are set afire. Let him be caught in the counsels he ponders, for the sinner praises himself in the desires of his soul, and the unjust man blesses himself. The sinner provokes the Lord. He will not seek him out because of the fullness of his wrath. God is not before him. His ways are defiled in every season. Your judgments are removed from his face. He shall rule over all his enemies. For he said in his heart, I will not be shaken. From generation to generation, I'll be without trouble. His mouth is full of cursing, bitterness, and deceit. Suffering and pain are under his tongue. He lies in ambush with the wealthy. He kills the innocent in hidden places. His eyes look intently at the poor. He lies in ambush in hiding places, like a lion in his den. He, he lies in wait to seize the poor man. To seize the poor man, to drag him away. He will humble him in his snare, but he will bend down and fall when he rules over the poor. For he said in his heart, God forgets. He turned his face so as never to see it. Arise, O Lord God. Let your hand be lifted high and do not forget your poor. Why has the ungodly man provoked God? For he has said in his heart, you will never call me to account for this. But you do, but you do see, you do perceive the suffering and pain. You may, d might deliver them into your hands, therefore the poor man will be left to you. You give help to the orphan. Break the arm of the sinner and the evil man. His sin shall be sought, and because of it he will not be found. The Lord will reign, but you, O nations, you will perish from his earth. The Lord hears the desires of the poor. Your ear heeds the readiness of their heart to judge the orphan and the humble, that man may no longer increase his great boasting upon the earth. I just wanted to read that out of a different translation and also from a different text. as a different family of text than the Masoretic, which is all of our modern English translations are derived from, uh, whether pick your one, including the New King James that I'm going to be preaching out of, to hear it from the Greek, uh, which is a completely different tradition, uh, and so you'll see some different turns of phrases. As we looked at last week and we built ourselves up from the future, coming backwards, turning around, looking back as God sets his throne up to judge and as he destroys the nations and sets their memory gone, uh, we have come back and last week we looked into very briefly this couple of verses, that's all we really have, to describe the the church age, the time when we can trust in the Lord, the time where we should proclaim what he has done, his deeds and his work on our behalf. And we have seen that, that he has become a refuge. We picked up verse 9 and 10 uh, and 11. The Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put your, their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion declare his deeds among the people. And so we have this, this expectation that we will be the ones who trust in the Lord because we know him. We know him because he had already come. And so we're on the other side of the cross and we're heading backwards towards the cross and the resurrection event, which is today's passage. And we see that, well, you who know him, trust in him, but also that you are to declare his works. You're supposed to declare to others this hope, this message 
that he is the refuge. He is the one in whom you must trust. He is the one that will never forsake you. It is him that you should be singing praises of. He is the one who will lift his hand, if you will, for his people. You will, and so we are to declare that, that he is the avenger of the blood of the saints. And while we think, well, that's also part of the church age, yes. An active part of the church age is that there's going to be a large, overwhelming majority of the earth that doesn't want to hear that message, who will respond in antagonism to that message, that, um, and even to the point of violence, of bloodshed. And we see that in our world today. We're somewhat insulated from it here, aren't we? We're a little bit protected, and Daniel says we have a different kind of persecution, a wearing us out instead of a violent one. Um, but we see it throughout the earth, this violent reaction to this simple message, and that is that God is your refuge, that God uh, is wants to deliver you, that God wants to be uh, there, and that you can trust him, he will not forsake you, uh, that he has done great things for you. This is the message of the church that we hold up today and reflect upon is that we're going to do so even at great cost to ourselves. We're going to persist in this message because we want to reflect the love of God that sent his son to die on Calvary's cross is the same love we are to have even for our enemies. That while they despitefully use us, we are going to deliver to them a message of hope, a message of peace, a message of deliverance uh, that is provided not by us, but by God. And the question is, why does the world hate that message so much? And Jesus Christ tells us that, well, you hate me, and, and by the way, that's the message. Jesus Christ is the message. He says, you hate me because you hate what I've sent from, the Father. And so we, as followers of Christ, are hated by the same body of people but for the same reasons that they hated Christ and that they're really of their father, the devil, and so they want to do his works. They, their pride uh, is uh, attacked. It is uh, the issue at hand. Can we humble ourselves before the Lord? Well, I don't want to acknowledge I'm a sinner. I don't want to acknowledge all that, which, by the way, is the balance of much of this psalm. We're going to go into the history of sin and what it looks like, how it's evidenced among people. Because that's the precursor to Christ. Why did Christ have to come is the question that is resolved with that. And so we go forward with this message. It doesn't matter how violently we are received. It doesn't, that martyrdom happens and that puts us into a condition not of seeking revenge, but of rather praying for those who do injury to us. And uh, that's what we are called to do. And so it says, listen, God will avenge your blood. Trust him to do that. He will accomplish that on our behalf. We just need to faithfully serve him. And these three or four verses here give us that instruction that we are to be faithful in that. And so we have, you might say, well, that's a really short period, short few verses to, to span the whole church age. But remember, we're coming at it from an Old Testament perspective. This is David writing, and he's talking about the secrets of the Son of God. Uh, and so we're really going to the farthest secret first, and that is God is Jesus' judge, setting up his throne as judgment and what he does to the nations. And that's the future even to us. And now for him, the church age is really, he doesn't know how long that will be, but he spends that time talking about that 
And now we come into our passage. So all that's review. We come into our passage today, which picks up uh, in verse 13. And so it says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem, and I will rejoice in your salvation. We have here a presentation, and these two verses really focus in on a single event that we are here celebrating today, uh, and that is the Lord's resurrection. It is declared here in the midst of this that this is the kingpin, if you will, of history that divides his redemptive act and even his judicial act uh, from that with sinful men. We will see as we back up behind this, as we go forward in the psalm, we're going back in time, you're going to hear all these statements. Where are you, God? Arise, O Lord, arise. We're going to invite God's presence. But in this verse, as we find that this is the secret of the Son of God, is that he has come and he was humiliated. He talks about this, and so he cries out to the Lord, have mercy on my, consider my trouble from those who hate me. And certainly we might say, well, is he speaking of himself or someone else? Does that sound familiar? That's what the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip. Is the prophet speaking of himself or somebody else? I remember that Philip started with that passage and preached Christ to him. And so we're here, and that's why we call this portion a messianic psalm. So he's speaking of Jesus. That it is, and that's why the title of the psalm is, is the secret things of the Son of God, or the Son, S-O-N. And so we have here this picture of Christ coming and crying out to God. He says, listen, I am going, I'm under attack by those who hate me. And if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, you cannot miss the reference and the connection to this concept of God, of Jesus Christ crying out to the Father, saying, if there's any way for this cup to pass by me, uh, nevertheless, if there is no other way, that let your will be done. I'm surrendering my will to yours. So here's the son surrendering his will to the father. Uh, you might say, well, the three are one. I, yes, but they are three persons, and therefore they have three wills. And that's why you go to Genesis, and it says, let us create man. It was, like, it was an agreement that they would create man in the image of God. And so that we studied back in chapter 8. And so we come to this, and we find him crying out to the Lord, look at my trouble from those who hate me. And we have many pastors talk about them hating him without a cause. Why do men hate Christ? And we're not talking about the most wicked men that belong in prisons. In fact, um, they were very receptive to Christ's ministry. It was religious people that hated him the most. It was the Pharisees, Sadducees, the teachers of the law. It was the priestly class. They're the ones that hated him the most. Because their claim was, well, he claims to be a son of God. Well, if he is, and he demonstrated that through many proofs uh, that are recorded for us in the Gospels, and evidenced that, and there was evidence all the way back to his birth, all the way through his earthly ministry, those three years in public ministry, and we find him in his teaching, in his, in his examples, in his miracles, that ample evidence. And yet they hated him. And they wanted him troubled. How many times did Jesus Christ avoid a death that they wanted to inflict upon him? They wanted to kill him many times over those years in ministry um, because of his teaching. 
because one of the things he taught was the error of the, of the religious community in thinking they were representatives of God when they had abused God's word. They had manipulated to have power and control over people instead of uh, being ministers, that is servants, a minister is a servant, servants of the people and serving the people of God as ministers of God. And so Christ called them pretty strange names, whitewashed sepulchers, the blind leading the blind. And they hated him for that because he exposed their darkness with his light of truth. And so we come to this passage and, and we find Christ crying out and inviting God to consider the trouble that he is receiving from those who hate him and hate him without a cause. And we are reminded of that. that While we celebrate something today with great joy, we please remember that this is after a very violent and harsh week of maltreatment by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he willingly and with joy endured for your sake to bring you salvation, which is where we're going to end at verse 14. And so Christ in Gethsemane asks for God's to reconsideration. Can you look at the trouble I'm in and look at the... And yet he understood in essence, and so his humanity didn't want to endure that, yet he recognized the necessity of it. And this must not be lost in our message, that there is an absolute necessity for Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, for there is no other way to deal with the dilemma of man's sin and rebellion. There is no other mechanism. You cannot undo any of your sin by doing righteousness. It can't be done. If I murder someone, it doesn't matter how many people I try to give first aid to to save their life, I'm still murdered. I'm still guilty of this. Um, doing something good does not undo something evil I have done. And we recognize that in our judicial system. And so God's measurement in heaven is not a scale of good versus bad things you've done as though somehow you can undo that. No, there's only one way, and that is that your sin must be paid for. Either you will pay for it yourself in a, in a place of fire uh, where the worm doesn't die and, the, and darkness, or you, or you will allow someone else to pay for that, and the only one that can pay for your sin is someone without sin. And so as Jesus Christ in Gethsemane cries out to his Lord, to God, his Father, and says, is there any other way? He knows that there isn't, and that's why he resolves himself, not my will, but yours be done. I would like to avoid this agony that's coming, but I will endure it if there's no other way. And that is the conclusion we must get out of Gethsemane. There is no other way. You cannot go to church enough to earn heaven. You cannot do anything good. You can't give enough. Uh, preachers preach about money. You can't give enough to get to heaven. It won't secure your place, nor will improve your place necessarily. Uh, we do it as a, Testimony of thanksgiving, not as a means of trying to uh, pay for an entry fee. There is no other way. And so when, when the psalmist reveals to us this secret of that Christ himself is 
calling out to his father and saying, consider the trouble that is coming upon me from those who hate me. And the response we understand to be, there is no other way. We teach our children this little song, one way God said to get to heaven, you must go or come the Jesus way. And that's why this celebration of Christ's resurrection is so precious is because we are, are elevating in our mind and our hopefully in our lives and, and strengthening our faith that it is the power of the resurrection that can transform lives and grant us entry into heaven because it is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes our sin and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that grants us new life. And there is no other way. And so we don't, as Baptists, we are historically uh, believe in the priesthood of believers, which means we're extremely tolerant people. You can believe whatever you want to believe. We will not force you to believe. What, that doesn't mean our, our system is not exclusive. We believe there's just one way to heaven. But we also believe that you must choose on your own without coercion, we will communicate the truth to you. We will not force you. And hence we tolerate. I said, well, if you want to believe that, you can believe that, but it's not going to work out for you in the end. Because we know the end. The psalmist knows the end, doesn't it? Because he started at the end. And he's working his way back to Christ now. So he knows what's at the end. And it's not going to work out for you if you're among the nations that are going their own way instead of God's way. And so we have an exclusive message, but it is a message that must be received by men. And we acknowledge, hopefully with Christ, that they're going to hate you for that message. And men hate the truth only because they are committed to a lie. Why does the country of India, why, and it's not the whole country, different states are passing the anti-conversion laws. Uh, they're really targeting Christian communities um, because so many Hindus particularly, but also a few Muslims, are converting to Christianity. And, of course, much like what happened in Ephesus with Paul and the silversmiths, where nobody was buying our idols anymore. And it created a fervor uh, there in the, in the book of Acts. And that's what's going on. Well, why do they hate that? Well, the truth is usually hated by those who are, who are living off of a lie. But that lie will always be exposed, if not in the short term, in the long term. There will be a costliness to that. And so they hate the truth because of their commitment to the lie. And we're going to see that commitment in verses to come in these two chapters. We get in chapter 10, and even here towards the end of chapter 9, we're going to see why are they so committed to their lies, to their error? Why do they hate the truth? is because they are abusing people through the mechanism of the lie. And so they hated Jesus. What, who hated Jesus? The people who are exercising power by the abuse of the law in Judaism. And that's who Jesus went after. And so he, when, when during the Passion Week, which, which uh, would have just been passed, when he drives out the money changers out of, out of the temple area, well, Who's making money off the money changers? Well, it was the priestly class. They were the ones who were in there exchanging uh, your Roman coins for the temple currency. 
They were the ones that were selling inferior animals to those who had traveled a great distance and needed to have a lamb. So they brought money instead of a lamb with them for the sacrifices of that week. And they would sell very poor ones to them at exorbitant prices. And so that's the ones who hated him because the lie gave them power and gain financially. And so Christ is pouring this out before the Father at Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, and he, and he shares that out. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. But as the New Testament tells us that for the joy that is set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and knowing that there was something on the other side of that cross. And he knows who he's talking to. He's talking to his father, and this is, the, this is our reference to the resurrection here. It says that you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of Jerusalem, I will rejoice in your salvation. You see, Jesus understood that it wasn't just his death that was necessitated to cover the sins of men, that an innocent one die to pay the penalty for the world, and that innocent one had to be more than just one person. One person could die for another person. It had to be God incarnate so he could die for the world and not just for one other person. And so that was necessitated. Certainly there had to be the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there's no removal of sin. And so that, that was necessary. But Christ also understood that the real power of Christianity is not just forgiveness, it is life. It is the power of eternal life and the power of new life in this age. And this is what the resurrection teaches us. And so Christ of Gethsemane pouring out and inviting the Father, look upon my condition, look at the trouble, look at those who hate me, uh, but is it necessary? Yes, it's absolutely necessary. There's no other way. All right, I trust in you because you are the one who will what? Who will lift me up from the gates of death. Our Lord will experience death. He will enter into those gates just as he's going to talk about the gates of Jerusalem uh, in, 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 a little bit later. And so he, he enters into that, but he says, the Lord will lift me up there. And not just in an exalted place in some afterlife, but he will lift me up out of death, is the indication here. And this is that calling of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he will lift, that, that Christ ultimately, Jesus was ultimately at Gethsemane trusting that the Father would raise him from the dead. He prophesied it as three days later. And so here he is pouring himself out, recognizing he is salvation for man. When we get to the book of Acts, and you look into Peter's sermons particularly, but throughout the book of Acts, you'll, hear th you'll read this phrase pretty frequently. Um, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. And I've preached on this in, on, on Easter's past, uh, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. You see, the crucifixion was really the act of men who hated Jesus. They really hated God. 
And so we don't have a reference to that in this verse other than look at the trouble of those who hate me. They crucified him, but it is God who raised him from the dead. This is a divine work, and only God could do this, for only God could accept the payment for sin as sufficient. That the sacrifice offered was acceptable, that Christ had lived in obedience to God and in not only in a perfect birth, but life, and was approved. And the evidence of that is the resurrection. And so we find that the Redeemer, the Son, the secret of the Son, was that he knew who to trust. He trusted the one who could raise you from the dead, take you right out of the gates of death, and bring you into life. And not only is he doing it for himself, but this is his offer to man. It's to bring you out of the gates of death and bring you into life. And figuratively speaking, we talk about that in this age, in this time, that we who were once dead in our trespass and sins, once dead, and could only be in misery and, and trouble of our own making, as we're going to see in text later on next week, uh, that we are responsible for that, um, that, that, and there's no deliverance, there's no hope, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, it's just darkness. That we who are in that condition uh, could not save ourselves. We are 100% dependent. Only God could come in and deliver that. But only through an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable payment. And so we go from that into life. And we just had a baptism where we celebrate that and being buried, died dead, buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. The concept that now I have the light of God's uh, presence in the Holy Spirit, of his truth, uh, and I have the power of salvation, the power of the resurrection, that now I have a purposeful, delivered, uh, bright life to live. Now I can please God. I know how to do that. I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. And now I have the opportunity to do that and the joy and peace that should be evident in the people of God. And if that's lacking, then there's something lacking in your relationship with God. Because the power of the resurrection is the power to serve God righteously, to do Him faithfully, and with peace. And this is the one whom... Jesus Christ put his hand, put himself into his hands. Well, not only do we have it in this life, we have it, deliverance from the gates of death in our future. And that is the resurrection. And that's why Christians don't talk about, well, we're dead. Because we know that we're only in the gates of death. That is, that is a temporary condition. A gate is a temporal place. It is a place of movement. You don't usually stand in the gate. In fact, some of you, if you stand in the entry, I stand there and shake everybody's hand on your way out. But if we all congregate there and have our conversation, what happens? No one can go in or out. We got, don't stand in the doorway. You know, go over there and talk. Um, well, gate is a place of movement. And so for the Christian community, we don't talk about those. We actually use terms that the world has kind of taken in. And we passed away. Passed away to what? Well, we passed away from this world to another. But we all, but our, the common biblical word that's used is we sleep. 
that we're not, we, we, we just sleep in our, and that we will anticipate a resurrection, that this is a temporal state. We all understand that sleeping is generally, might be for a period of time, but it is a limited period of time and we will awaken. And so we use that term for those who have passed, who are asleep, that we anticipate a resurrection because the one who delivered Jesus from the gates of death offers us the same. This is salvation, not just the forgiveness of your sins that you can't get rid of and only God can take care of one way, but there's only one way to to the resurrection unto life in his presence, and that, again, is Jesus Christ. And so we have to go to the verses before that to figure out, well, what do we do with that message? Well, you have to trust in him. If you know his name, in verse 10, put your trust in him, for he'll not forsake if, if you seek him. You want the new life, you want the deliverance, you want the 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 forgiveness that is available through the power of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, you're going to have to know him, know his name, and we've just communicated what what he's done, but that knowledge isn't enough. It says you're going to have to trust in him. If you know his name, trust in him, make him your refuge, your dwelling place, make him your place of protection and safety. Put yourself in uh, his guard, in his his place of, of deliverance, and then seek him out. With all of our life, we're going to continue to seek the Lord all our days. Not just one day. We recognize that if he's done so much for me, I'm going to seek him every day. And this is the response to this events that we see here described for us in verses 13 and 14. So we find the resurrection that God has lifted his son up from the gates of death. On that occasion, it was three days, three nights. On our occasion, it may be decades. For some, it was been centuries, even millennia. But we have every confidence that the resurrection will be. For God has declared it, even as the psalmist has every confidence that the future will be laid out as he has already declared in this psalm. God will be his judge. On which side of the judgment do you want to be? Well, the last aspect of our section here regarding the time of Christ is in verse 14. that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of Jerusalem or the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. Again, that connection to the joy of Christ in in Jesus Christ providing for you salvation um, and the willingness to go into the very gates of Jerusalem to describe it. You see, the crucifixion happened outside the gates. Golgotha, the place of the skull where the crucifixion occurred, was just outside the gate. Today, that would, it's the Damascus gate. It's a northern gate. Um, you would go out if you're going to head to Damascus. That's why it's called Damascus Gate, Damascus being north of Jerusalem. And so you go out that gate, and, and there t- 
to the east, there is a place, and there's a garden there now, and they call it the Garden Tomb. And there were there's a place that has very similar striking, but we had a they, between my first visit to Israel, my second visit to Israel, part of the face fell off of that rock, out of, and so, but uh, we see this place where Christ was crucified outside the gates. He was crucified there in Golgotha. He was buried there. These places exist. You can visit them today. They made a wonderful garden there. It's free to access. You can go in, uh, no charge, the way it should be, and spend time there. And that's our favorite place. If we have free time in Jerusalem, we just like to walk over there and, and spend some time. Um, but that was outside the gates. What Jesus Christ says is, I'm going to be going into the gates of Jerusalem and declare the resurrection. And when we talk about the resurrection, we think about where all that happened and all the activity of that day of the women coming in from Bethany and, and from the Mount of Olives to the east. And we have all this activity going around all associated with this gate of Jerusalem, Damascus Gate. And Damascus Gate, by the way, is right next to the Temple Mount gates in some of that area. Uh, it's one of the main access points you would use to get to the temple. And so we have all that's going on, that this is the power of Christ, of his resurrection, was going to be announced, was going to be uh, rejoiced, or was going to be uh, delivered, in the very gates of Jerusalem. Those that hated him without a cause, to them will be declared God's salvation through the power of a resurrected Lord. Can you imagine all the activity that day throughout, in and out of that gate? Not just of Christ's disciples, but of soldiers. What happened? Where did his body go? What's going on? of the enemies going in and out and say, oh, they must have stolen the body and they're paying off the soldiers. Just tell them that they came and stole it. We'll, we'll cover you. We'll protect your life. All the activity in and out, all because a man rose from the dead by the power of God. But no ordinary man, but the one who claimed to be the Son of God and said, you destroyed this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And thus in the gates of Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem onward, we have this message to declare that death has been conquered. Not just by one man, certainly by one man, but for all men. And you need to know his name. And you need to trust in that name. And you need to seek that person that you may be saved. This is salvation, it says. And so as we're working our way back through time, through this psalm, going way to the future at the end, and we're bringing it back, and we come to this pivotal event here in just a couple of verses, but such a powerful event described here. And now we're going to go into what was the reason that Jesus had to come. And we're going to see the nature of people's sin. And, and next week we're going to look at that and, and the extensive description we have here in, in the balance of, chapter 9 into chapter 10, but I just want to focus in on three requests. One is in verse 19. It says, Arise, O Lord. 
The other one is in verse 1. Why do you stand off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? And then in chapter 10, verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. God responded to the cry of people because they saw the wickedness around them and saw no hope. And God answered that cry in that person of Jesus Christ. For many, many centuries, it looked like, oh, men could do whatever they wanted. And maybe that's how you think things are going today, that men can do whatever they want and get away with it. And where's God? Because much like it was right before Jesus came, he says, it'll be like that before I come again. So what we saw before Jesus came the first time is exactly what we anticipated being like before he comes a second time. And so these, this crying out to God, arise up, rise up, defend us, rise up, deliver us, rise up and stop this wickedness. And then the, the somewhat accusative statement, where are you? Why haven't you come yet? Isn't it about time? This is the cry, really, of what it was like before Jesus came the first time. We know that because there were people that were looking for the Messiah. Oh, that he would come. Oh, they would come. And, and one of them, uh, Simeon, had the opportunity to come and prophesy over the baby Jesus. Says, oh, now I can pass in peace because my eyes have seen God's deliverance that we have been crying out for. This is the solution. This is the answer, is Jesus Christ. It is God's answer to man's dilemma that men have cried out for. But we are on the other side historically, and really we're crying out now for God's return, and so the time is short. And my challenge is, you know his name, or you wouldn't be here, but do you trust in him? Do you seek him with all your heart? For this is the requirement. Certainly, it need, they need to know his name. This is why we have to declare it. But we need to trust in him, seek him. This is our salvation and our only salvation that we have. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for the power of the resurrection, for the provision that you have made for our salvation. And we rejoice in it today. We pray that as we reflect upon and celebrate that resurrection and what it represents for us, the, com the completion of your work here to provide for us, Lord, that we might uh, trust in you and seek you all our days, knowing that there is an end, not only to our days, but to this age. In a time of judgment, Lord, I pray that if there's any here who have not trusted in you, they might do so today, having heard your name, to recognize their need to trust in you, to seek you with all their heart. Lord, we cannot cease to give praise to you. For you've done mighty things. And we marvel at the opportunity we have to celebrate that today, in this place and throughout the earth even into heaven itself. As the new song rings forward, glory to the Lamb. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.